Today's show is brought to you by public.com. You'll be hearing more about them later on. But for now, let's get into it with today's interview. Ecstatic to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Mike Green, Portfolio Manager and Chief Strategist at Simplify Asset Management. Mike, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Jack. It's my pleasure. Uh, Mike, I want to ask you about many, many things, uh, you know, market structure, zero data expiry uh, options, the soft landing narrative, the no landing narrative. But I first want to start out uh, with a point of view that's becoming increasingly dominant in you know, economic circle as well as market participants, which is, yes, uh, you know, interest rates uh, have, have risen, and that is a challenge for, for the economy and financial markets. However, the labor market is strong. The unemployment rate is at 3.4%. And because of that, uh, demand will remain strong. People will pay off their their debts. The economy can remain strong. Uh, To what degree do you agree or or disagree with that narrative? Well, I think that there's always elements of truth in any narrative, right? And so there are components of the labor market that are exceptionally strong. If you need to get somebody to change a bedpan in a nursing home, you're going to really struggle if you need to find somebody to work at a fast food restaurant or a gasoline station. You're going to really struggle because, candidly, they're difficult jobs to fill under normal conditions, right? And now you're facing a situation in which the um, quantity of individuals that are looking for that type of employment have been reduced dramatically. So those with less than high school education have fallen sharply in the labor force. I could pull it up uh, in a second to look at the absolute numbers, but that's broadly been falling since the mid-1990s. Those who have less than a college degree began falling um, around the global financial crisis. You know, Now we're actually watching a situation where the increases in unemployment the decreases in real wages that are occurring on a nearly record level indicating surplus are happening happening primarily amongst information workers, those with college degrees, who would historically have been protected from this type of dynamic. And what are the consequences of that? If, you know, for the most of our lifetimes, uh, your recession hits lower income uh, folks the, the hardest, what are the consequences now that it's the re- reverse right now? Well, I think this is going to be the the really interesting question is, is that we don't entirely know, right? So theoretically, you should have greater flexibility in obtaining employment once you have a college degree. It's it, You become, you know, what's it's called a general purpose education in terms of the information world. But the reality is, is that we operated under a constrained labor supply environment for those with college educations for an extended period of time. That largely changed in the last generation and has given rise to an increase in what's called underemployment. You know, you graduate from college, you think that you're joining the ranks of the professional class, and you suddenly find that the job opportunities are significantly less than you would have expected. You know, two decades ago or three decades ago, it would have been nearly unfathomable that you graduate from college and have to go to work at Chipotle. Suddenly, that becomes a little bit more normal right? Uh, Or you become a barista at Starbucks, etc. Historically, that was very unusual. It's now become increasingly common. Um, But broadly speaking, what you would expect to see as you face a surplus of knowledge workers is longer and longer periods of unemployment. And we've seen this, the median duration of unemployment has been rising in every recession that we've seen over the last 40 years, suggests that it's becoming harder and harder for people who have those types of jobs to find replacements at equivalent levels 
you know, the example I'm highlighting for people right now is that the median employee at Google that's being laid off, my understanding is, has a compensation package somewhere in the neighborhood of $275,000, right? That's a phenomenal job. Finding a replacement for that is going to be quite difficult. We're not seeing those layoffs show up in things like unemployment claims because candidly, if you're receiving um, uh, you're receiving severance compensation as Google employees are, and you were getting paid $275,000, the level of unemployment benefits in the state of California, the maximum that you can obtain, not on a monthly basis or a weekly basis, but in total for a stint of unemployment is around $13,000, right? So for a Google employee who is making two hundred and seventy-five dollars and is now receiving severance that is roughly the same as that compensation, they have very little incentive to actually hit that unemployment line in the way that prior generations who might have been coming off of an assembly line or being unemployed from the leisure industries, you know, a housekeeper, et cetera, those are the individuals that would historically have been prepared to immediately hit the unemployment claims. We're just not seeing that this time. It's a different type of cycle. So normally, uh, labor data, unemployment rate, non-farm payrolls, uh, uh, continuing claims, that is normally lagging. But you're saying because of this phenomenon that, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, knowledge workers are, are being laid off and they're on uh, severance that is many times the amount that they would get on unemployment, you're saying that that lag is even greater than normal. That's, my, that, that's what I'm seeing in the data sets, yes. What does that indicate uh, about the economy? Does that mean that we might be later in the economic cycle than people looking at a 3.4 unemployment rate might perceive. And by the way, as you know, uh, recessions can start with unemployment rates uh, in the 3% or even in the, in the 2%. They start almost by definition from lows, right? So to turn around and say, oh, the unemployment rate is really low, that's the last thing you're going to do is dissuade me from the idea that, that that's where a recession could start, right? Now, what we are seeing is a significant increase in things like layoffs, right, which is another coincident indicator associated with recessions, we are seeing rises in bankruptcy filings, which is another coincident uh, component. Now, are they dispositive? In other words, do they tell you with absolute certainty that a recession is here? No, right? And, and you can't pretend that it does. But we are seeing the data deteriorate, even as we're basically looking at information like nominal spending or um, consumer spending or inflation reports and saying, okay, clearly this indicates that there's no slowdown. Well, that's just not true, right? There's very clearly a slowdown. And in particular, in the economically cyclical and interest rate sensitive sectors, we're seeing a significant slowdown, right? And that's just going to take time to play through the data. Again, as you know, Eric Bazmajian and others continually point out, employment is among the most lagging indicators in this process. So to see that starting to tick up, the unemployment claims beginning to tick up, to see the continuing claims having come and lifted off of its lows, to see the data on the individual states in terms of whether they're growing employment or not growing employment, all of those are warning signs that we're further through this process that people expect. And, you know, not dissimilar, although I actually disagree with the mechanism of this, if you remember the dynamics from the movie The Big Short, right? The whole point that they make is when interest rates go up, people are going to start to default. Well, that's exactly what we're seeing, right? So we've seen, in particular, the real estate sector and commercial real estate, we're beginning to see the distress emerge there. 
we're beginning to see corporations that are walking away from properties, effectively taking the jingle mail dynamics from 2006 and 2007 that occurred on the residential side and increasingly pushing that into the commercial and industrial space. Right. And uh, those so many people uh, before the great financial crisis had adjustable rate mortgages, uh, subprime mortgages, which are packaged in, into loans. And obviously, residential real estate is a huge asset class, even though the rate hikes and the, the spike in mortgage rate has put a, you know, a freeze on mortgages and particular refinancing a- activity defaults for actual residential mortgages, unlike the during and before the great financial crisis and after remain low. It's in the somewhat more niche, not really niche, but of, of uh, commercial real estate offices, which has its own challenges of people you know, not going to the office, and particularly car loans as well, that we're starting to see uh, a spike up. How big are the commercial real estate and auto markets? You know, Do they have the chance to be as systemic uh, as the great financial crisis? Or are they, okay, this is going to cause some damage, but it's not going to be that systemic? Well, to be very clear, residential construction is bigger than both of those two sectors combined, right? And if it were only those two sectors, we could expect to see some limitations around it. Unfortunately, that's not what we're seeing, right? So we are seeing residential construction, new housing permits, new housing starts, et cetera, particularly on the single family side, but increasingly on the multifamily as well, You know, we are starting to see those deteriorate in a leading fashion. And it's just important for people to distinguish, or at least in my opinion, it's important for people to distinguish between what causes those actual activities to lag and what are the leading components to it, right? So remember, if you've obtained a permit for multifamily and you've obtained financing for multifamily, you're not going to not do that multifamily construction regardless of the outcome, right? You just don't pull those things unless things are so dire that we're not even having a discussion around, you know, what this looks like. The simple reality is, is that people are are very much engaged in a dynamic that says, well, maybe it's not going to be that bad, right? Now, on the flip side of that, we are seeing evidence that it actually it might be worse than in some situations because we just didn't have the kind of fundamental change in structure in the last cycle that we're experiencing this one, right? This is the cycle in which the retail malls are going out. This is the cycle in which the downtown business districts are being taken apart. Can we ultimately repurpose many of those properties? Probably, but we just don't know, right? So if we're going to convert commercial real estate into residential real estate and help fulfill the needs associated with the desire to live in urban environments, that may work. But that's a transition that is, you know, just beginning, right? And it's we're still a long way away from anything that looks like a sustainable change in that direction. So disruption tends to create a recession. Uh, to what degree do you think the U.S. economy broadly is interest rate sensitive? There's some arguments, and there's at least some evidence for this that uh, residential real estate and uh, the, you know the corporate bond market are somewhat. Um, more protected from rising interest rates because you know Amazon's issuing 10 year, 20 year, 30 year debt and uh, you know people most people get a, a 30 year fixed rate mortgage where in Europe it's mostly adjustables and Canada so that that people feel that pain much much quicker um to to what degree do you agree with that and then uh yeah how much sort of interest rate sensitivity is in those commercial loans is it is it all pretty much floating rate or, or very short duration where you have to constantly uh re- refinance and then yeah also uh uh, what about uh, car loans too? 
Well, car loans, we're already seeing these dynamics, right? So we've moved from 0% financing to 7, 8, 9% sort of financing levels. The credit deterioration that we're seeing, you know, remember that auto loans were largely a protected asset class. When we had the bankruptcy reform of 2005, um, you're unfortunately uh, way too young to remember those dynamics. But in 2005, we reformed consumer bankruptcy to make many types of debt non-dischargeable, right? Auto loans, credit card loans, et cetera, are often included in those dynamics. As we went into the 2008 environment, remember that people could actually get rid of their, their mortgage debt by defaulting against those loans. And they were forced to make a choice. Do I default against all my loans or do I stop paying on my house that's deeply underwater that I'm probably going to walk away from anyway and hold on to my automobile, right? The automobile for the American public represents the ability to hold a job. And so when you're going into a recession and you're forced to choose between the idea that you're going to lose your house when you could potentially move in with friends and family, or you're going to lose your car, which would likely result in you losing your job, you're going to choose the car over the house, particularly because you can't discharge that debt anyway in many situations, right, without forfeiting that car. So you're, you're now looking at a situation in which people are dealing with the ramifications of that having become perceived as a favored asset class. The interpretation of the low default rates that we had in the 2008 cycle in the auto space meant that lending standards in the auto space deteriorated radically. And as we went into the coronavirus, we had, you know, you remember the liars loans or the ninja loans from the, the, the housing cycle you know, that pales into compare in comparison to many of the uh, shenanigans that occurred in in the uh, auto sector, you know, dynamics like stimulus loans being able to substitute for um, uh, income verification dynamics, right? Like it just turned into a mess and, and it's an inevitable, you know, um, desire within the lending space is, is when the demand is hot, when the opportunities are there, your compensation will always be inflated by you adding credit to the to the mix. Now we're dealing with the hangover associated with that. At the same time that we're dealing with the dynamics of making far fewer cars than we need as a population. I think I, I know where you might be going with this, but there are you know two or three different camps when it comes to a recession. Some people say we already had a recession in 2022. So we're at the beginning of a brand new economic cycle, you know, all blue sky ahead. Other people say, yeah, recession's coming, but maybe, you know, 2024. And others are saying, we, you know, we are approaching one qu quite rapidly. Uh, which camp are, are you in and, and you know, why? I think that we are approaching a recession. And I, what I don't know is the severity of that recession, right? So we had the two quarters of weak economic data in, in early 2022, during that time period, we saw elements of credit spread widening. We saw some slowing of the economy. That appears to heavily been influenced by the dynamics of rising oil prices or rising gasoline prices in particular as a percentage of the median income. So in the trough of obviously with you know negative oil prices, uh, you had food and gasoline expenditures taking about 8% of the median household budget. By the summer of 2022, that had risen to 15%, right? So that's a huge unexpected increase in, in spending. If I'm more charitable in terms of that dynamic, we saw a spike that was not dissimilar to what we saw in 2005 to 2007, where we went from kind of a 10% level to around 15%, right? So 
that loss of 5% of the discretionary spend was what I would argue we saw as that economic slowdown in the first two quarters of 2022. From that point, the decline in oil and gas prices and slowing of food inflation at the same time that we've seen some income increases has added back about half that. So we've seen about 300 basis points of improvement in terms of the median household's capacity for discretionary spending. You know, that appears to have largely exhausted itself at this point. It would be very surprising from here if we saw significant improvements in gasoline prices, food prices, et cetera, from these levels as distinct from, you know, the year over year change. Um, that suggests to me that we're, you know, exhausting the capacity that the, the uh, lower end consumer has. And by lower end, I don't mean the very bottom because they often have significant income protection in the form of SNAP components that are inflated, et cetera. And we definitely saw that in the stimulus packages that we had. Unfortunately, that is beginning to go away. We're also seeing a slowing of the labor force. We're seeing a reduction in the rate of wage increases, et cetera suggesting that more and more people are basically going to you know, no longer be benefit, benefiting from that. And at the same time, we've used credit to fill in those gaps. You've seen, obviously, the huge increases in credit card debt. Those dynamics both require servicing at very high levels of interest rates. So credit card interest rates are approaching 30%. Um, and at the same time, you just don't have the additional impetus associated with it, right? So people increasing that credit component to finance consumption. So all in all, like I really struggle with where we're going to see these the significant increases in spending capacity that are necessary to power the economy, particularly in an environment of much higher interest rates. Yeah, I'm struggling to see how we continue to expand spending capacity, given the dynamics of already very low unemployment, very slow labor force growth, um, reduct, uh, a significant reduction in stimulus, particularly to the lower end consumer. The only positive is effectively the Warren Mosler model of, well, the government is actually increasing its deficit, but it's increasing its deficit by raising interest rates on itself. And those are just transfers to very wealthy people, old and wealthy people, right? I mean, this is a weird setup that people seem to be applauding a significant fiscal transfer away from those in need at the low end um, and, and you know younger and in need at the low end to those who are extremely well healed at the top end. We're effectively reducing the need for them to tap into principle for spending as they have for the past several years. I could find that argument convincing, but uh, many people insist upon the opposite. That is the you know, decade of quantitative easing and zero interest rates caused all these technology companies to be worth trillions of dollars, and that led to wealth inequality. So the Federal Reserve can't really win. Uh, whatever it does, people accuse it of, of causing inequality. Well, it, I mean, as you know, unfortunately, I don't really buy into this idea that um, we saw a dramatic expansion in the technology company valuations tied to the low levels of interest rates. I actually you know, would highlight that as recently as 2013, when we had long you know, been, been in an extended period of low and negative real interest rates, we hadn't seen that expansion at all. Right. So I, I, the data doesn't really support what people are saying on that, but you know, they're certainly welcome to their interpretation. Right. Yeah, D definitely the historical data. Um, like, I, I think now the narrative is so baked in, it maybe a self-fulfilling prophecy of if interest rates go up in a day, you know, the NASDAQ probably w won't do well that day. At, at least that's was the story in 2022. But I mean, yeah, definitely, as you pointed out in 2013. And then, you know, 
uh, during the entire dot-com bubble, interest rates were well above zero. So much so that I think like the equity risk premium was maybe negative or I don't even know if I have that right, but yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, it came very, it came, it came very close. I mean, you, you, in, in aggregate, certainly dot-coms were money losing entities, right? So despite the fact that we had five and a half percent interest rates, they managed to, you know, put up incredibly and record high levels of real interest rates, even higher than we're experiencing today. You, you still managed to have the dynamics of a runaway bull market, right? So I, I, I just don't buy it. Um, but and, and, and ironically, actually, if you want to really think through these dynamics under a put call parity model, you know, it's not just that you're discounting the future stream of cash flows. You also have to discount the value of the option against that. And so if you think about higher interest rates, what they do is they raise the value of call options relative to put options. So a company that is effectively a call option, right, Tesla, right, that actually the embedded dynamic should raise the valuation of Tesla as interest rates go higher because the call appreciates relative to the cash flow component, which is very low. Hmm, that's interesting. I, I I didn't think about that. Uh, so the last year, the int- uh, you know from let's say October or you know early November uh, till December, uh, short term rates were were falling. The yield curve was uh, you know getting even more inverted. And you know, stocks were generally falling, um, but you know the price action th- this year uh, has been one that has you know really been pricing in either a soft landing or even a no landing. And you know you have all sorts of not only are stocks uh, rallying, but you know it's copper stocks that are doing well. It's home builders. It's those cyclical stocks that you know people say that the the market is a forward uh, pricing mechanism. Uh, so that so what do you, what do you make of, of that action in the stock market and also the bond market where you know now the terminal rate is getting close to five point five percent, which is uh, pretty stunning. An alternative way of thinking about the narrative of twenty twenty two is is that when the Fed began to hike interest rates significantly, it mechanically causes bond prices to fall. And if I'm running strategies like target date funds or balance strategies where I'm running a portfolio as compared to doing thoughtful analysis on any individual equity portfolio, right? Those portfolios are going to mechanically have to sell equities to buy bonds under that condition, right? Fed hikes interest rates, bonds fall in price. My bond portfolio has now declined relative to my equity portfolio. I have to sell equities, buy bonds. Under that type of model, you would expect the companies most affected to be the largest market cap components of of the broad indices precisely because the selling activity, just like the buying activity that preceded it, has an outsized influence on companies with large market caps relative to their liquidity, right? That's really the story of what we saw in 2022 was not a traditional bear market in which equities fall significantly relative to bonds, but bonds and equities basically moved in lockstep across the course of the year, despite the fact that the Fed was raising interest rates significantly, right? So one interpretation, it's my preferred interpretation of what really happened in 2022, was this portfolio rebalancing channel that we often think of in the context of QE or QT, right, was actually happening within the, stand, within the framework of traditionally balanced portfolios, right, systematically rebalanced portfolios, and really wasn't indicative of a recession or anything else being priced in. Now, coming into 2022, we clearly saw evidence that people were trying to reallocate to both equities and to the losers that they had sold from a tax efficiency standpoint at the tail end of 2022, 
you know, remember that the Microsoft's Teslas, et cetera, basically ended on their lows on December 31st, right? So as money tried to come back into those strategies or into those securities in a simple rebalancing framework, that money coming in is going to experience the dynamics of, you know, the flow coming into the market, the flow coming into those securities and the individual inelasticities of those names. And by and large, that's the real story that we saw in 2022 so or 2023 so far was the more inelastic a stock was, the more somebody was convinced that price is no object in terms of the way that they should hold it. So a Tesla or a meme stock, right, that price is going higher validates your thesis as compared to price going higher lowers your future return. The more the, you know, the, the holding base could be characterized in that framework, the Kathy Woods, et cetera the faster they went up in price, right? I mean, everything I see suggests that this was a reallocation that by and large has been driven by players like CTAs, um, trend followers, uh, you know, those who had taken tax loss selling, re-adding to their positions in a variety of ways. That to me seems to have been the, the story so far in 2023. And how durable of a bullish force on the market do you, do you think that is? Some attribute the, the recent rise in, in prices to increasing liquidity, which has to do with, I guess, you know, the reverse repo facility being drained and uh, money coming out of the, the Treasury general account. Um, how uh, how responsible do you think that, you know, those definitions of, of liquidity are on, on a tr true price action? Well, I don't, I don't think there's any question that they began to contribute, right? And so this is, again, one of the things that we've seen is, you know, people will turn around and point to the Treasury or they'll point to the Fed and they'll say, oh, they're not really doing Q QT. No, absolutely, they're doing QT, right? There's delays in the data. We're seeing it. There's a couple of things that are important. One is the start of QT is more a signal than anything else, right? And so it, it like there's not really a substantive change that happens with that slowing of the balance sheet um, and diminution associated with the flows going into the market. As you move further and further through QT, you begin to run the risk that you've effectively sucked dry a portion of the liquidity in various areas of the market. You know, just think about it from the standpoint of you were draining water from a lake, right? You don't drain universally while the top level goes down. You know, some areas of the lake are going to be deeper than others and fish can congregate in those areas. But eventually you start draining it down and you discover, oh, wow, look at all these fish that got trapped over in this pond now that has no water once we drain it down just a little bit further, right? So you get discontinuous or nonlinear reactions associated with continuous withdrawals of liquidity in a way that is not at all dissimilar to the reverse happening as you begin to add liquidity, right? We all know that at the, at, at the start of an intervention, after a recession, after a bear market, you have this phenomenon people call pushing on a string, right? Well, you know, it does nothing to the fish if, you know, the ones at the top of a small area, you know, three foot deep pond, let's say, you know, if the water level is one foot, that means you have two feet of fish that are still gasping, right? Until you add enough water to that, you're not going to meaningfully change the behavior of at least a subsegment of those fish in terms of their capacity to survive. The same thing happens in reverse as you withdraw liquidity. It doesn't you know, affect everybody uh, to the exact same degree. It's not like a slow degradation. Some fish will notice no differences whatsoever for a period of time. So we're, we're seeing that play through in the economy. You're 100% correct. 
U.S. economy is increasingly insulated in many ways, particularly in the real estate sector. Those who do not need to move, those who have not lost their jobs and are forced to relocate, those who do not immediately need to hit the market in a variety of ways are benefiting from the fact that they've locked in low interest rates. That means the cost of servicing their debt is low. But the minute that they try to tap the liquidity of the market, they discover that the market isn't the same one, right? Now, as that occurs, and as you continue down that process, you'll experience more and more distress. And everything we're seeing suggests that corporations and individuals are doing everything they can to avoid hitting that. Supply of real estate coming to the market way below normal levels, right? We're seeing companies walk away from properties in the commercial real estate space rather than trying to directly renegotiate because the reality is if they try to renegotiate and establish a much higher cost of capital, that can impact the rest of their properties on a look forward basis, right? It can become components that suggest, wait a second, your credit quality is deteriorated. You suddenly issued at a much higher interest rate. That in turn can affect ratings agencies, behavior, et cetera. And all of this occurs with a lag, right? We're we're very much of the, you know, well, we can get the data instantaneously when it's released, and therefore we expect the data to instantaneously reflect the information. These things take time, both to the downside and to the upside. If you've been listening to Forward Guidance, you probably know that treasure yields have been surging. Right now, you can get a 5.1% yield on your cash with treasury bills. That's pretty good. It's even better than what you can get with a traditional high-yield savings account. So owning U.S. Treasuries is great, but buying them is super complicated, or at least it was. You used to have to go to a bank or navigate a government website that looked like it was designed in the 90s. Thankfully, investing platform public.com has changed all that with the launch of Treasury accounts. Now you can move your cash into U.S. Treasuries right from your phone. And you can do it with the flexibility of a bank account. There are no minimum hold periods or settlement delays. In other words, you can access your cash whenever you want. And the best part is that because it's government-backed treasury bills, it's an incredibly safe place to park your cash. Public.com will even automatically reinvest your treasury bills at maturity so you don't have to do anything to continue growing your yield. So to get that 5.1% yield on your cash, go to public.com slash forward guidance to move your cash into a treasury account today. Thanks. Let's get back to the episode. Right. So we're the economy, we're driving on the road. Sounds like you see a lot of pitfalls ahead. How does that impact your current view on assets. So that's uh, stocks, uh, bonds. I mean, do you think bonds will, will outperform stocks? And uh, you know, how might uh, how high do you think the, the Federal Reserve might, might get to? And, and might there be cuts in 2023, uh, which, which is now no longer a consensus view? Well, so one, I think the fact that we've now priced out those cuts and started to price in additional hikes makes bonds even more attractive than they were before, right? So from my standpoint, the modest losses that you've taken in two-year bonds effectively returning back to the lows that you had last year um, creates opportunity. I would not treat it at all as you know dissuading me from wanting to put money into those areas. Um where we're uncertain at this point is, is you know, the dynamics of the persistence of inflation, how that inflation is being created, what's driving these dynamics, et cetera. You know, now, I fall into the camp that says that there's much less of a labor component to the inflation dynamics and much more a component at this stage in terms of um, you know, market power components that have occurred as we have allowed horizontal consolidation of more and more industries and businesses we're seeing businesses use the cover of inflation to hike prices in a way 
that is not, you know, that is unprecedented in our lifetimes, right? Or our investment lifetimes, but it's completely consistent with, you know, a, um, you know, uh, the dynamics of game theory, right? The last thing I want to do as a corporation is raise prices when my competitors are not raising prices or when there's a general perception that I'm individually profiteering in some way, shape or form. But if everybody around me is raising prices, well, why not? Right. What's what what's what's the harm? I'm not going to you know, I can always say, oh, inflation is hurting us. But the simple reality is, is that we're watching corporate profit margins near record levels and people are describing it as, you know, businesses are being forced to raise prices. No, businesses are making a tangible choice. Right. They're looking at the environment that's in place and they're saying, as Mary Barra, GM, explicitly stated, we want to protect our margins. We want to protect price. We're not trying to compete nearly as much as we would have historically. Therefore, we're more comfortable, you know, dealing with fluctuations and basically allowing not not allowing our inventory to build, despite the fact that the supply chains have largely corrected themselves. So it's just it, it's a different dynamic that we haven't seen in a long time. So you're saying uh, a lot of more infl inflation is caused by you know, companies' willingness to, to raise prices because uh, they don't have competition, uh, rather than uh, you know, money printing or the labor market being strong. Does your conclusion lead that you to think inflation is more uh, entrenched, more speculatory, less transitory, or or the reverse? When the Fed hikes interest rates, chooses to intervene, and again, remember all those who are screaming that this is a normalization. You know, we're super upset when they were intervening to preserve businesses. Now, of course, you know, they're revealing their true colors. We all want to, you know, have this purge of sin, right? The sin of debt, right? Um, I just don't see it in the same way. I'm not arguing, by the way, that we should have exceptionally high levels of debt. What I would suggest is debt is just a tool, right? So debt, anyone's debt is somebody else's asset. I have yet to hear somebody come out and say, you know, the problem is we have just too many assets, right? Um, you know, that never really seems to happen. What people have is this unique fear and resentment of debt, the ability of people to borrow money that they currently don't have to invest in opportunities um, that they would otherwise not be able to take advantage of. Now, if that debt is used to finance consumption, as Lacey Hunt and others have pointed out over and over again, that ultimately becomes deflationary in terms of your borrowing forward demand. You're increasing my consumption today, lowering it in the future as I face repayment of that. But if that same debt is used to expand production and to expand the capacity of the economy, then it can have a totally different dynamic. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now is that the debt that is necessary or the investment that is necessary to expand the economy and deal with the challenges that we have as we decouple ourselves from China or consider, you know, reshoring much of the production that we've talked about, we're simply not capable of doing that now. And by raising interest rates, perversely, it entrenches the existing competitors, right? Basically puts them at a significant advantage in terms of market power versus what you've seen historically, right? Now, I wanna be really clear, we have not set incentives in place that encourage investment for expansion of, of capacity. You know, we've not done a good job over the last decade in taking advantage of the opportunities that were presented to us with low interest rates to restructure our economy. I'm not suggesting that, you know, 
lowering interest rates is going to magically change that. But what I am suggesting is, is that raising interest rates doesn't magically accomplish the other side of it either, right? It creates conditions that we have to evaluate in a very coherent framework. And candidly, the higher interest rates are likely to lead to less productive capacity in an environment in which we're supply challenged much more so than we are, you know, facing an extraordinary excess of demand. Right. Okay. So you like bonds. What do you think about stocks and who will be first, who will be last? You know, in a typical recession, you know, broadly speaking, uh, utilities, consumer staples, and, you know, perhaps secular technology stocks uh, perform better than those cyclical, you know, banks, uh, copper miners, stuff like that. Do you think that will be typical or will it continue to be those you know, long duration equities, um, you know, uh, unprofitable technology stocks that will be taking on the chin? The answer is it depends. Um, we've already seen the unprofitable companies be taken to the woodshed in the same manner that we saw at the dot-com cycle, right? So the Kathy Wood type stocks, many of them were down 80%. You know, some of them absolutely are going to end up going to zero, right? I mean, don't dismiss that dynamic. I, I would be very hard pressed to figure out what the long-term business opportunity is for a GameStop or an AMC, et cetera. Um, doesn't mean I, they can't, but I'm skeptical, right? Um, we've already seen the Bed Bath & Beyond begin to crater, et cetera. Um, you know, the Carvanas of the world, all of those began to fall all the way back in 2021. We've now seen, just as we did in the aftermath of the 9-11 type dynamics, you know, an extraordinary rebound. And the question is now, do we see a credit cycle, which is what we really saw in the second half of the 2000 and 2003 bear market. The first was a correction of speculative excess. I would argue we saw that largely happen in 21 and part of 2022. The broader market phenomenon in 22 for me is um, mostly about this rebalancing dynamic. The Fed hiked interest rates so rapidly that we didn't actually see a credit component to it because nobody needed to refinance, nobody really faced those much higher interest rates. Um, that process, though, is beginning. Same thing played through in 2000 to 2003. It wasn't until the summer of 2002 that we really began to see the credit cycle kick in, right? And that's that. That feels very similar to kind of where we are. If you look at January, February, March 2002 we were starting this rolling over and then crashing into the credit cycle that exposed the WorldCom frauds, the Enron frauds, et cetera. My gut tells me that something similar is underway right now. And during uh, the dot-com bursting, most assets, most stocks were held by active managers who are waking up every day thinking about how to invest you know, their money and, and their clients' money and do you know, portfolio allocation, due diligence. Um, now, as you have been pointing out for a while now, uh, most assets are, are passively managed where it's you know, algorithmic and uh, just, the money just goes in and out of the indices. How might uh, a, bear, you know, a bear market be different uh, when everything is pa or most things are passive compared to active, uh, as we've seen, bull markets are very different when things are uh, active, or, uh, passive versus active. Yeah, so so you know the dynamics I would argue are well illustrated by the work of Gabay and Koyjan or by Valentin Haddad, who's extended their work in some ways. Um, you know, the more passive you have, the higher the inelasticity of the market, because as you've heard me discuss over and over again. Another way of framing passive, because it can't actually be passive under the rules of passive as articulated by Bill Sharp, you know, 
you go back and read his paper in 1991, The Arithmetic of Active Management, a passive manager or a passive investor is one who never transacts, right? Well, you can't get into a market or out of a market if you never transact. Therefore, you can't exist. It's a unicorn, right? Fantasy. Um, uh, I could do the uh, uh, um, Matthew McConaughey impression. You know, it's a fugazi, right? It doesn't actually <laughs> exist, right? A fugazi, whatever. Um you can't have passive investors. And so what you have is investors who operate under the world's simplest algorithms. If you give me cash, then buy. If you ask for cash, then sell. If you look at the difference between an active manager and a passive manager, an active manager will react to a redemption typically by saying, okay, I'm going to try to use cash that I have in hand to handle this redemption. I'm going to try to avoid selling the names I really like because I want to position my portfolio well. And you know what? I'm going to maybe sell some of the stuff that I, I'm kind of marginal on, right? Passive works in the exact opposite way. If you see redemptions or you see money go in, right? Redemptions have to sell. What do they sell the most of the largest stocks? Those that by definition had outperformed the most. If you look at it on the reverse side, money going in, there is no bargain hunting, right? Nobody puts money into passive and then expects the passive manager to say, you know what? Tesla was down a lot last year. Therefore, I'm going to add more to it. That's simply not the way it works, right? It just adds the money in in proportion to its market cap. When they do that, if they encounter a high proportion of investors who are also inelastic, in other words, unwilling to meaningfully change their supply and demand in response to a change in price level, well, then you see extreme price movements. And that's what we're seeing. And I would expect the exact same thing to happen on the downside. If we see a significant increase in unemployment, we're likely to see two separate factors. One is an increasing proportion of investors are tied into passive. And so ultimately we'll have to see net selling of this. We'll also see less net buying as employment falls. And that's particularly true if it's happening in the white collar worker who during their period, again, of, of severance is not experiencing this. If we wake up three months from now and those Google employees have not replaced their incomes and by replaced, I mean, literally replaced, right? So find a new $275,000 a year job with all the benefits associated with it, which I challenge you to find in this environment. That's very It's very difficult. Then we could actually see a, a meaningful deterioration in the flows. We're not seeing it yet. And I've, I've said this over and over and over again. And I just want to emphasize, like, we're just not seeing the indication that passive is really net selling yet. We are seeing a slowdown in the process of buying. So broadly speaking, when markets are dominated by passive players, bull markets are more extreme and bear markets are more extreme. Is that everything? Yeah. Everything becomes more extreme, right? I mean, that's the definition of an inelastic market is one that moves significantly in price on small changes in supply and demand. Hmm. So that's one aspect of market structure I want to ask you about. The second is one I'm so glad that you're here to talk about, which is zero day to uh, expiration options, which uh, a lot of people are attributing to the, the price price action we have. So roughly speaking, you know, if I buy a call option that you know, uh, expires in September of, of this year, I have the, the right, but not the obligation to buy a certain stock at a certain price. Uh, and that, you know, ends on uh, uh, September. Uh, how, and, and so zero day expiry option, zero day to uh, expiry option is the, the right to buy it with literally it will expire that day. So immensely short term, 
uh, you know, people can attach. It's, it's immensely speculative. These things either go into money or they are, are absolutely zero if you don't sell it. Uh, chart for us just the, the remarkable rise of these instruments and uh, what is the significance of them? Who are the players that, that trade them and to what degree are they, are they influencing price action? Um, so I think that there's, there's a couple of dynamics here. One is, is that the narrative that comes through the mainstream media outlets is, is that this is retail speculation, right? That this is, you know, people, you know, girls gone wild, bikinis being thrown against the wall sort of stuff. Um, the, the reality is that's not the case at all. About 95% of this volume appears to be institutional in nature. That suggests something totally different. Um, the use of zero data expiry or very short dated options is increasingly, or, or at least as we was increasingly being used to one hedge very specific events, right? So a Fed meeting on X date. If I have the ability to hedge that specific event, event why would I pay for a 30 day option or a three month option or a one year option if I'm trying to hedge a particular event, we saw a significant in increase in demand associated with hedging those types of events at the tail end of last year. In the beginning part of this year, you would see single day vols in many situations facing those events would spike from kind of the 20 level that, that uh, they're generally running at to in many situations like around CPI prints or a Fed meeting, you could regularly see single day implied vols of around 50%, right? On an index, a single day implied vol of 50%, like there's no way that's a good deal, right? I mean, you can make money on it, but the required move is so extreme that you basically are really only protecting your portfolio, right? Um, the second, now there are people who use these very short dated options for purely speculative dynamics. They're typically buying something out of the money that you know, can cause a significant pop, but that's that retail speculation that we're referring to. Because the probability on a zero data expiry option, like all options, because the expectation is, is that it's going to expire worthless, right? The traditional statistic, and I'm not sure I would quite say this, but the traditional statistic is around 85% of options expire worthless, right? When you have a high probability trade like that, it behooves you to try to do it as many times as possible, right? So let's just mechanically think about different strategies I could deploy if I want to do something like call overwriting or put writing. I could sell a single one-year option, right? So I get one chance at that 85% probability. Now, that's a great outcome, right? But far higher probability is if I were to sell options on a monthly basis. So now I have 12 shots on goal. Each one individually has an 85% chance of winning. That means the probability that I win by definition in aggregate has to be higher than if I were to do each uh, do just the one option, right? If I take that a step further, I can then move to weekly options. And by the time I move to daily options, you're creating a smoother and smoother path in which you're going to risk smaller sums net, but trade much more frequently. Right. And that's exactly what we're seeing in that zero data expiry space. We're seeing people increasingly try to move to something that looks like, well, I want 250 opportunities to sell something that has an 85% chance of win. Right. I'm going to sell each one in smaller size, but the aggregate quantity of the transactions that I'm doing are going to explode. It's exactly what's happening in zero data expiry options. Now, who are the key players? We have hedge funds that are being created to engage in things like call, all, call overwriting. Um, we see mutual funds starting to take this up. We've certainly played with it in our labs at Simplify. 
you know, these are all things that are playing through in the system right now. Is it creating this huge systemic risk? Not really, right? But it has the potential just like XIV. And I just want to emphasize, you know, things like the XIV blow up in February of 2018. It's not that those represented a catastrophic and systemic risk to the market, right? There was never really a question that the end of the world was going to happen if a two and a half billion dollar ETF went to zero, but it caused a heck of a lot of disruption, right? And so we're looking at something similar with zero data expiry options, where I would argue that there's two potential impacts. One is an unanticipated move that effectively knocks dealers out of a comfortable local zone, right? A locally optimized zone can have very uncertain impacts. That's far more likely to the downside than to the top side. The second thing that's happening is, is that increasingly market participants assume that the zero data expiry option sellers are going to be there, compressing the level of implied volatility and creating conditions under which it would be very inexpensive for me to hedge my portfolio relative to the level of realized volatility that's occurring. Um, but when you have that type of dynamic, the market increasingly becomes dependent upon it. Right? It's the equivalent of, you know, the mother's little helper from the Stones, you know, song. You know, sure, a little green pill can actually help me if I use it on occasion. But eventually I develop dependence on it and now I need two. And if I don't get that one, my performance degrades significantly. That's the key risk that we face in the market right now is that we're becoming increasingly dependent upon this supply. Now, just like the XIV, where we saw that dynamic in 2017, where the market was supplied tremendous amounts of volatility, making it extremely cheap to buy insurance, right? And driving a high degree of comfort that was shattered on February 5th, 2018. The key risk I would argue for zero data expiry options is not the internal behavior, but the risk of regulation, right? Because remember what's actually happening with these zero data expiry options, they're never settling. Right. If I write a zero data expiry option and I have T plus three settlement or I have a prime that is going to assess me at the end of the day based on my exposures, well, guess what? Every day I go home with a flat book. Right. I've sold that call option against my underlying position. If it gets called away from me, I have to buy back the shares anyway. But I go into the into the next day with no option exposure, no short vol exposure. That's fantastic. Right. It's a total misrepresentation of my position, but it looks great from a prime broker standpoint. Thanks, Mike. I've got a ton of questions. The first I just want to clarify is everything you just said, were you talking mostly about very short dated options on the broad basket S&P 500 or individual stocks or, or both? So the, the dynamic can certainly play in both, but remember that we've not yet listed options for every single day on individual stocks. There's, you know, there are weekly options that replicate the, some of those dynamics for individual stocks. So you can sell a zero data expiry or buy a zero data expiry on an individual security, but that's always been the case, right? This is largely on indices and we're seeing because of the popularity of these products, we're seeing that expand across the S&P into the Russell. We will eventually see it on individual stocks. But the regulators are definitely going to take a look at this and, you know, remember what actually happened on Volmageddon. It wasn't that the market just out of the blue move by that amount. 
when the regulatory environment changed and suddenly became much more expensive to sell the vol that was embedded within an XIV type exposure, what was called the CCAR provisions changed for the Fed in February, on February 2nd, 2018. That set in motion a chain of events that culminated in the collapse of XIV. Right. Could we see something similar here if the, if the SEC were to wake up and say, or the Fed were to wake up and say, wait a second, these actually aren't clearing. We aren't properly you know, getting information on initial margin conditions for these types of products. Therefore, we're going to suspend the usage of them. What's the impact of that on markets? We really don't know. You mentioned a lot of people who are selling zero data, uh, zero data expiration options. Uh, you know, market makers, dealers, hedge funds. But who are the buyers? And you know, if there are so many sellers, and you, know, you really tell me how the buyers are, wouldn't that cause the volatility to be uh, lower priced? And broadly speaking, how uh, priced would you say the volatility is? If it's normally, and you know, this should be the case that. Uh, implied volatility will be higher than expected realized volatility just because you know you get the option and you, you should pay a, a premium about that you know vol volatility uh, risk premium uh, are these are these options very expensive somewhat expensive not expensive at all cheap what, what do you think well so remember when you say every buyer has to have a seller right or every seller has to have a buyer that that's technically true but not entirely right so in the case of options, I can synthetically hedge my exposure by um, uh, utilizing you know, risk-neutral arbitrage, right? basically put-call parity, to recreate that exposure. So if I, as a fund investor, want to sell a call option against my underlying position, right? so I've got a position of diversified stocks that I think has a 95% correlation to the S&P you know, therefore, I don't have to worry that much about writing S&P options. If I write a very short dated option, the buyer of that doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who's trying to speculate on the S&P going higher. It can be the market maker who's facilitating liquidity by delta hedging out their exposure. So now let's just run through the math of what happens there when you have that type of net order imbalance, right? So I'm a fund manager. I choose to sell a zero data expiry call option to the dealer, to the market maker. The market maker is now long a call option on the S&P 500. Does the market maker, and remember that that's what market makers do, they want to make a market, they're not trying to express a directional view. Do they look at that call option and say, wow, this is fantastic. Look at the opportunity I have to participate in the S&P 500. No, they don't. They delta hedge out their exposure. How would you delta hedge out a very short dated option exposure? Well, you'd have to say a call option exposure. You'd have, to, you'd have to sell futures in a delta-hedged adjusted equivalence, right? So the delta-hedge ratio is the ratio of futures that you would need to sell in that scenario against the option that you are now long in order to neutralize your exposure to the market, okay? Mm -hmm. So at the start of the day, I receive this call option. I delta-hedge by selling futures. What should that do all else being equal? The price of the underlying shouldn't change, but the price of the volatility of the option should change? Well, there's two ways I can handle this. One is if I feel high levels of uncertainty about my ability to transact in the market, I can crank up the implied volatility. Or I would flip around and say, I'm going to sell futures to Delta Hedge, right? So I don't worry as much about the option price or the implied volatility. If I think that the liquidity is there, I Delta Hedge out that exposure, meaning I've sold futures all else equal, that pressures the market lower, right? 
Now what happens to the delta of that zero data expiry option? It will be worth it will be worth less, the delta will be lower. The delta will be lower. So now am I going to short more or less futures when the delta falls? Less. I'm going to short less, which means since I've already shorted them, now I have to buy them back, right? So what you see is all else equal this pattern of market selling off and then rebounding, market selling off and then rebounding as those positions are delta hedged. And from a path dependency standpoint, this is fantastic for the seller of that call option, right? Because I end up at the end of the day, slightly higher in price on the underlying that I own, even as my call option has expired worthless. Rinse and repeat over and over and over again, right? That's the pattern that we're seeing in markets right now. And uh, broadly speaking, uh, what is the what is the performance of these call over overwriting programs? I guess you know, uh, because especially on a zero today to expiration uh, program, because I know that uh, a bulk of the S and P five hundred returns come on a relatively small amount of days. So you know, if you own the S and P five hundred for you know, all three hundred sixty five days, you know, two hundred and sixty whatever tra- trading days, uh, and it, it's up twenty percent for the year, and I own it for two hundred forty days, twenty days fewer. Uh, I might make zero percent if I if I you know missed out on the twenty best days, right? Yeah, so that's actually if you stop and think about this, it's actually a benefit, right? Because if you think about missing the twenty best days, one of the ways that I do that is I've engaged in a call overwriting program where I sell calls on a monthly basis, right? If we move above the strike of those calls that I've sold every single day after that. I don't participate. I miss those great days if they happen to occur at that point. But if I switch to to zero data expiry options, I could theoretically sell a smaller fraction each day, right? And yet collect more premium over the course of the 22 days in the month. So instead of selling 100% notional on a monthly basis, maybe I only sell 20% notional on any given day, right? So what happens if markets go up under those conditions? 80% of my portfolio follows along and I collect the premium associated with the call option that I've sold, even as I underperform on that 20% of my portfolio, right? If I do that over and over and over again, I'm going to actually sell more option premium, even as I have a better chance of participating and continually restrike. Like this makes perfect sense why people want to do this. The key question is, should they be allowed to do this given the, the the dynamics that we're not settling? And the second component is, what's the incentive structure if I'm making money on selling 20%, maybe I should go to 30, maybe I should go to 40, maybe I should go to 50, right? Like where's the optimal amount? Or maybe I don't even wanna bother with the call overwriting at all, right? Maybe I just wanna sell calls naked or sell puts naked. Eventually, you start to run into those dynamics in this type of condition. That's the Minsky framework, right? Stability begets instability. The high returns attract additional participants, adding structural risks to the story. You said uh, made a lot of great points. Uh, they're very complicated. That I'm definitely going to you know rewind and re-listen to this. And you know, if folks are confused, maybe they should do that too. But you know, as simply as you as you can, Mike. What are the consequences of the proliferation of the buying, selling, trading? Uh, writing of zero data expiration uh, options? Is implied volatility higher? Is it lower? Are, uh, are prices more sticky? Are they more volatile? Are they more vol- are, you know, more sticky on a short-term basis, more volatile on a longer-term basis? Uh, what can we conclude from this? 
Well, the, the conclusion is naturally that if 95% of the options are going into the institutional space and institutions have a strong structural bias towards selling options as compared to buying options, this is depressing the levels of volatility at those very short dated components, right? Now, the question isn't so much, is that a good idea or a bad idea as much as how much are they impacting the market itself, right? How much is, are their choices driving prices lower? There we're seeing evidence that the demand for options, the absolute notional demand for options at the levels that set the VIX itself has fallen by about 30% over the past two years. That suggests that the VIX is less stable. If you suddenly enter into an environment in which the markets begin to fall on a day, 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 day basis, right? So day after day, that can lead to a much more significant spike as people begin to present that looking forward or are forced to engage in you know, forced liquidation as we'll eventually see in the real estate space, right? I mean, when a Brookfield Asset Management hands over ownership of a large um, property, they're not handing it to an operator, they're handing it to a lender. If the lender were so great at operating real estate, they'd be, they'd be real estate operators, operators, not lenders, right? They don't want this paper. Mm-hmm. And so, so broadly, uh, do you think this makes a very short term or zero data expiry puts more, more attractive or calls more attractive because everyone is wants to sell them? Um, the quick answer is that they are a low stochastic return, but it do, you know the probability is still low, but it's probably higher than is being priced in, right? Mm-hmm. So if you see a particular event or you see an opportunity to buy some of that volatility, like fully understand you're probably still going to lose 80 to 85% of the time, but it can create opportunity for you. Mm-hmm. And is this, uh, you know, I, I'm glad that so far in this, this conversation, we've you've st- mostly, you know, st- um, stuck away from value judgment, but is this a good thing? Are markets more stable? You know, I know uh, in the run up to the great financial crisis, derivatives were seen as this wonderful thing because people can hedge risk and you can transfer risks to parties who are more able to bear them. Well, we learned that was absolute nonsense and risk was being transferred to parties who could not bear them at all and, and needed to be nationalized and bailed out by, by the government. I'm not at all forecasting that, that this will happen uh, for zero, zero data expiry options. But yeah, I mean, do you, do you think the benefits of this outweigh the risk? And then also you said the SEC should be looking at this. I hope you're right, but you may have more faith in the SEC than I do because you know the SEC and Gary Gensler, they made a video about how uh, you know, predatory SPACs were. The only problem is they made it at, at the end of 2021, they were far too late. You know, they're uh, you know I think Jim Chanos makes this point. Regulators are uh, there to clean up the scene. They're not there to prevent crime. They're there to you know uh, prosecute after after it happens. Yeah, no, I I think unfortunately that's true, right? That regulators are not going to take a proactive response to this until you know something occurs. And and ironically, if they begin to take an action, as I indicated, just like the CCAR revisions in February of 2018, they can actually precipitate the event themselves, right? So they, they, they cause the event that they're trying to prevent. Um, you know, when you say faith in the SEC for this sort of stuff, I'm not actually articulating that I have a huge amount of faith in their ability to handle this process. Um, I would suggest that you know, the real risk that exists is if an external event occurs, 
that causes enough of a move that the market makers themselves get wounded in some way, shape, or form, or even worse, an exchange is left exposed because some player, like a Bill Huang, right? So remember, we're only a, you know, I guess we're now about 15 months removed. No, I'm sorry, uh, 27 months removed from Bill Huang and Archegos, you know, lying to his uh, prime brokers about his exposures, right? Just imagine if he never had to report his exposures, right? What, what could have happened if the assumption was everything's fine and it turns out it's not, right? So the real risk we have is, is that players are damaged that are more instrumental to the process than those who are participating, you know, broadly in this today. I can't speak to any individual one player and their credit strength, but we know how this works, right? If it, if you make money on it over and over and over again, and kind of that 85% of the time making money can become super seductive, you start applying more leverage to it. You go to raise a fund and you tell people, okay, we're going to do this at one and a half or two times or five times leverage because it's so high probability, right? We've chosen proprietary approaches that allow us to identify where things are super cheap, right? Like, And, and Mike, we've backtested it and it's never failed. And we've backtested it and it's never failed, right? 100%, right? This is the discussion that I had with Nick Cherney around the XIV at EQD in May of 2017, where his assertion was, you know, well, we've backtested it and we think that XIV would survive the crash of 87. It didn't survive 20% of the crash of 87, right? So like the simple reality is we can't know. And I think that's one of the things that is very frustrating to people when you talk about these risks is like, well, you know, what specifically are you highlighting? You're saying, man, I don't, and I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen, but the exposure that exists right now is if a discontinuous market event occurred while dealers were trying to hedge, you could end up hitting a dealer in a way that affected them, or you could hit a semi, um, you know, systemic institution who happened to overwrite something, you know, that, that created bigger risks than they had anticipated or, you know, underwrite something, not overwrite something to be very clear. They created bigger losses than they had anticipated by, you know, unforeseeable Six Sigma event, right? We've never seen those happen. Then suddenly the market starts to trade as if it's truly damaged, right? It becomes the crypto market in 2022 where everybody's dead already, but just doesn't know it mm. or isn't willing to admit to it. And Mike, uh, connect to me, how does this view of the world where you know, 99.99% of the time, everything's going to be okay, but uh, when the steamroller does you know, go over those people who are picking up nickels, it, it can get quite ugly. How does that framework, that view of the world, how does that tie into the work that you're doing on, on Simplify? You know, what are you doing? Uh, what kind of work are, are, are you, you and your colleagues working on to um, you know, potentially alleviate that? Well, so if my theories are correct... And I caveat that with if, although the academic evidence is growing, et cetera, then the options themselves are mispriced. They underprice these events, these dynamics that creates opportunities to hedge in a profitable manner. Right now, after a year like 2022, in which option hedging largely failed and created exposures that didn't work for the most part. And, you know, in many situations, um, choices about how to manage portfolios, et cetera, contributed to that, right? And so, um, you know, I have to agree with everybody that hedging is kind of in the penalty box as people talk about the VIX being broken or all these sorts of dynamics, right? As are, as are so bonds, not just volatility, but bonds too. 
Yeah, bonds failed in portfolio construction as well, right? So, you know, and there's links between them, et cetera. As I indicated, my view of 2022 is, is that it was not a traditional correction in the way that people think it is. It was very isolated, exposed to certain areas, but for the most part represented portfolio rebalancing more than anything else. Now, as we look at the dynamics of credit events and information entering markets that has, um, you know, more idiosyncratic immediacy, I would suggest the the opportunities grow for that type of hedging. But people are underexposed. People are underhedged, right? They have chosen to to the extent that they have hedged. In many situations, they're hedging by having lower exposure to equities than they might otherwise had. And perversely, that actually as they as they recognize that, oh my God, the world didn't end, right? As they start adding back exposure, as we're seeing in 2023, that causes prices to rise and cause people to dismiss the bearish case. That's, you know, same thing happened in, you know, early 2008, if you remember, you know, the housing market had already crashed and, you know, nothing had gone wrong. Therefore, subprime was contained and it was all silliness, right? Bear Stearns had collapsed, the game was over, markets were rallying into June, and then Lehman, right? So and inflation was so know, high we, that we couldn't be in a recession, right? Yeah, absolutely, right? Um, and you saw absolutely that, right? Remember the narrative of the summer of 2008 was decoupling, right? The rest of the world was going to be fine, the US was going to be damaged. Turned out to be almost the exact opposite. So, you know, can we foresee the future and say this is exactly what's going to happen? No. But it does appear that many of the same conditions are in place that have created people to overextend themselves in ways that we've seen over and over and over again. Right. So, so Mike, if you were sort of you know riding a wave of the old school tail risk managers were buying two year options, and, and you you know, realize and you know, others realize that actually more value could be had as protection if in the you know thirty day, the sixty day option space, would it now be fair to say perhaps that? You would go even closer in, and that you know, the closer you get to, to expiry, the more potential protection and the less bleed, uh, you know, on a real, you know, on a back tested basis, you would pay. I, I would almost say the opposite, right? I think the most interesting trades at this point are actually pushing out into the longer dated stuff. Remember what's going to happen if an event like I'm describing occurs. You're going to break the back of the single day option sellers creating the same sort of losses that that you saw people that were selling uncapped variants or even worse, the tails on variants experienced in March 2020. That structurally changed the market, right? We saw this with elevated levels of skew. We saw this with elevated levels of longer dated op- of option implied volatility that carried well after it became very clear that the coronavirus pandemic had been more than adequately addressed by the degrees of stimulus. And how much of your, you know, uh, emerging preference for longer dated protection, longer dated puts, is because of your macro framework that you know we might be headed for a recession soon, and you know, if so, U- U.S. stocks will perform uh, badly, and uh, you know volatility will be elevated. In which case, it is, it will be prudent to to lock in that low volatility on a forward basis. In the similar way, you you know, it's better to buy thirty year bonds than uh you know the three month Treasury note. Um, if if rates are going to fall, how much of that that plays into it? Um. Because if you know, because on a structural reason, if, if there are all these sellers of, if everyone's selling on the short term, I, I would think the value would be would be there, right? Well, so the the challenge is is that you experience extremely high volatility, so you can benefit from a crash, 
right? If you sell, if you happen to sell that one day, but, but remember you're on the flip side of those odds, right? So even if the option is overpriced or underpriced, that doesn't mean the price action has to ne necessarily enforce it, right? So markets so you're talking tend about selling to options, not buying, you're selling puts, not buying. No, puts. no, no, no. I'm, I, I'm actually saying like, even if you're right that the option is cheap, that cheapness in and of itself doesn't create the catalyst for the price to move. It almost does the exact opposite. As long as people are willing to supply that volatility. Now, when it's removed, then the price can move sharply, right? And you can benefit from a big win on that individual security. But if you really got it right, then you only make money once as compared to the opportunity to make money over and over and over again as more and more people are shaken out, right? Your next trade under the model that you just articulated could be done at extraordinarily high levels of volatility, similar to what we saw in the fourth quarter of 2022 where there would be single day implied vols of 50, right? You can't really make money on an implied vol of 50. So you've now missed your opportunity to participate in longer form. If anything, I'm actually, as I said, leaning towards the longer dated stuff. Absolutely, there are opportunities at the short end. But in this sort of situation, I would suggest that people increasingly want to be looking to, how can I find positions that I feel relatively comfortable betting against credit, betting against equities, et cetera, in a way that's not going to kill me as we get there. Think back to my trade on XIV, right? Now, the trade on XIV, the reason why people got carried out there is they kept trying to short XIV itself, right? So they were directly exposed to the, the um, positive carry of being short volatility. That was up 600% in 2017. What gave me the opportunity to do that trade was I was able to buy mispriced two-year options it basically allowed me to sit there and say, I don't really care what happens to the price on a short-term basis. I've put a relatively small sum of money out there, and now I wait and see if I'm right in my thesis. You know, needless to say, for our audience, you know, Mike is an expert who's been you know involved in the option space for for many decades, and that if you're not familiar with you know long put options, uh, you know they, they generally have a negative expected return. So you know the opposite of the XIV, uh, like UVXY or uh, VXX, it, it's it's never you know been busted, okay. but the uh, ten year, you know, the decade long return on that is is negative one hundred percent or negative ninety nine point you know nine nine percent. So uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, everything I'm talking about, I you know you you correctly describe it as adult swim. Yes. Um, you know, I can be absolutely wrong, and remember that the vast majority of my portfolio is always going to be in risk on mode. You know, I'm trying to participate like everybody else in a market that has a bias to move upwards, um, but there are opportunities that exist. To position yourself, you know, in ways that might offer protection from that. Mike, it's been a pleasure having you here. People can find your work on Twitter at profplum99. You have a new Substack. Yes, I give a fig. Thoughts on markets from Michael Green. And uh, yeah, I want, I want to give you a, a final uh, prompt, which is there is an option that actually you don't have to pay for, but it pays you now, and now it pays you more, which is cash, cash or short-term treasury bills. You, you said you liked the you know very short-term. You just uh, share final words on uh, the value of a, of a positive carry put. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, remember, you're now being paid 4.5% a year, and you can worry about inflation, and I understand those concerns. But you're, giving, you're being given the opportunity to earn a positive return on capital that you can immediately deploy when, when opportunities are more favorable, right? One of my key concerns is that more and more people are going to wake up to that reality 
resulting in net selling of equities, high yield credit, et cetera. Things that we really haven't seen so far yet. This is the first time in nearly two decades in which there is an alternative for people to put money someplace other than in equities. We'll leave it there. Uh, thank you, Mike, and thank you everyone for watching. My pleasure. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Check out today's sponsor, public.com at public.com slash forward guidance. That's public.com slash forward guidance. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.